We are going to review the Bitcoin Optech newsletter number 212. And we have one main news item for this week and our special segment. Um, I'm not sure if people follow along, but we do have uh, once a month segments. One of those this week is the PR Review Club. And Larry actually did the write-up this month and we'll be taking over that moving forward. And we also have special segments for client and service updates, which is notable technical updates to uh, software using scaling or new Bitcoin technology. And we note those with links. And then there's also the monthly stack exchange section um, that is another segment that we do monthly where we go over popular Q&A from the Bitcoin stack exchange. So this week is the review club. Um, so I think we can just jump in with our, our news item here, which is the topic of lowering the default minimum transaction relay fee rate. And we, we brought on uh, Peter Todd, who has been uh, contributing to that discussion on the mailing list in this most current iteration of the discussion. Um, perhaps it, it also makes sense since we may have some new listeners that everybody sort of provides introduction. So uh, I am Mike Schmidt. I contribute to Bitcoin Optech, and I also am the executive director at Brink, where we fund Bitcoin open source developers. Merch? Hi, I'm Merch. I uh, help educate people about Bitcoin online, and I work at Chaincode Labs. I write for the Optech newsletter sometimes. Peter, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Peter Todd. I've been... Uh involved in Bitcoin in various ways for years now and uh, used to do uh, a fair amount of core, you know, core developments as well, though I haven't actually contributed to the code base for a while. And uh, also we worked as a consultant in uh, various stuff related consensus. Excellent. Um, Larry, do you, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, um, I'm Larry Ruane and um, I work on Bitcoin Core, mostly doing reviews on a, a, on a grant from Brink. Excellent. Tom. How about we start with a short overview for the minimum fee rate? Like, what is it and what does it mean in the first place before we talk about changing it? Yeah, yeah I think that's a good place to start. Um, and I think that there was some uh, mixing of terminology, which I think might be good to clarify as well. Um, so maybe I can take the, 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 the 101 summary and then we can jump into to um, a little bit more depth there. Um, so yeah, the discussion here is about transaction relay fee rate. So if I am crafting a transaction and I wanna broadcast that, I need to make sure that I have peers that will relay that transaction. And, and one of the factors in consideration of whether or not a peer will accept and relay a transaction is the minimum uh, fee rate, and that's the minimum relay fee rate, which is currently one Satoshi per V-byte. So if for whatever reason, I have a transaction whose fee rate is, let's say, half of a Satoshi, then what will happen on the network currently is most folks have the default, which is one Satoshi per V-byte, and they will not relay that transaction. So if I was doing that to, to attempt to get a low fee transaction confirmed, the likelihood of that being propagated in the current topology of the network would be would be low. Um, and we've actually had, uh, I think, I don't know if it was an exchange or wallet software that was incorrectly calculating the fee rate and ended up in certain situations having something just under one Satoshi per V-byte in the past and, and there, those transactions weren't being relayed or or confirmed, and so due to some miscalculation on some of the software side, um, those transactions weren't going through um, as estimated. And um, I, I want to distinguish the, the relay fee rate with uh, the dust limit, and I don't recall the exact numbers for the different output types on dust limit, but you could, in theory, have a, a 10 Bitcoin denominated transaction that, that doesn't get relayed due to the fee rate um, and so that can happen with with large amounts 
um, as well as small amounts, whereas the, the dust limit is more about the actual size or the amount of Bitcoins in, in the transaction as opposed to the fee rate being paid by the transaction. So, uh, I mean, maybe, maybe just to explain it quickly, the, the idea of the dust limit is to forbid the creation of outputs that would be unprofitable to go spend in the future because they're just so small that the fees necessary to spend them is unlikely to be worth it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, the discard fee rate is three sets per V-byte. So if a UTXO is so small that spending it would cost um, more than, uh, yeah, I believe, uh, how do I explain this first? Um, if it costs three sats per byte that you to spend an input, and that's the size or value of the UTXO, it will not be uh, the transaction will not be added to the mempool by standard Bitcoin Core node. Yeah, um, what, one comment maybe it's still on your overview. Um, the min relay transaction fee rate is one satoshi per v byte. So most nodes will actually not accept transactions to their mempool, and also like they they learn about it and immediately drop it because it uh, doesn't meet the minimum criteria to be added to the mempool. And then obviously, if they don't add it to their mempool, they will not forward it to their peers either. And actually, there is a small amount of nodes that have lower. Um, in a min relay transaction fee rate set because it is a setting that you can uh, change on startup of your node. It is just that it seems apparent that no miners are mining anything below min relay transaction fee rate. I've uh, looked at the block uh, data a few times in the past and I could not find any transactions that were included that were uh, below that fee rate. So I think it's it's mostly stopped at the minor level where nobody is, is taking the transaction and putting it into blocks. Uh, I mean, I, I believe you're um, somewhat incorrect there because it looks like um, some miners at least mine zero fee transactions. And um, th th those seem to be things that they generate internally to then, you know, do whatever they need to do for their business. So it's, you know, it may be true that no one mines any you know, non non zero fee transactions with very low rates because there's just there's no way to get in there. But you know, it it I, it's a little hard to be sure about that because of course no one's creating them either. So okay, I'm I'm noting specifically a discrepancy on the mempool charts, uh, mempool monitors that shows that there's at times thirty to sixty megabytes worth of transactions waiting with fee rates below the min relay transaction fee rate, and then there is. Of course, the Coinbase transactions that have zero fee usually, the or not usually. I think there's no way to have, for them to have a different fee rate since they don't have an input. Um, and sometimes miners do include their own transactions. I would agree on that, but it's it's like if you look at it, I think the last figures I got were maybe one or two per day, which out of um, 350,000 transactions per day is basically zero. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly a trivial amount, although I would point out that because no one's really able to relay, you know, below min fee rate transactions, it's quite possible some miners do, in fact, have, you know, their actual nodes set up that way, and there's just no realistic way to get the transactions to there. And that's something that's quite unobservable to us because, you know, the moment you d diverge from commonly accepted relay policy, it just gets very difficult to get the transactions to the miners. Mm, I, I have a slight disagree there just because I do see on multiple mempool monitors and also uh, from individuals that run with lower uh, fee rates that they do end up getting transactions. So if miners were using those fee rates and also had their border nodes configured to relay transactions at these low fee I do think that we would see at least some blocks where currently with the with many blocks having uh, extraneous space that is not being used that include such transactions. But I don't see any blocks where there's a significant number of these transactions at all. But the, so, the thing is with like, oh, so the thing with mempool monitors is just because if these show up in a few different nodes doesn't mean that they have any way of propagating. 
right? Because, you know, some of these mempool monitors, the way they work is they connect to a very large number of nodes at once. But that doesn't mean that those transactions will still be able to go propagate from one to another. I mean, I, I, you know, I haven't actually done the exact math on this, but, you know, roughly speaking, it's probably true that if, say, 1% of the Bitcoin, you know, nodes happen to go and, you know, use some non-standard policy, transactions won't propagate reliably between those different nodes because there's just not enough interconnections. You know, this, this gets um, to, uh, like, the theory, the mathematical theory behind this is percolation theory. And, you know, it's a bit complex, like, what thresholds are needed to propagate. But essentially, the way percolation theory works is that below a certain threshold of interconnectivity, the ability of transactions to broadcast, you know, well, of anything to percolate through a network goes to zero. It's a very, you know, um, very strict threshold. You're either above the threshold where things can propagate or you're below it. I, I have more comments on that, but let's take it elsewhere. I yeah. think that uh, we, we've covered how it's difficult for the transaction to propagate in the first place, and there may or may not also be... Uh, probably no miner that actually includes them at this point but what would be the advantages and disadvantage as of um, reducing the fee rate and what would we um, how would that be achieved in the first place is maybe an, another interesting topic that we should cut into well, well first let me just mention one one thing that I think um, wasn't mentioned which is the minimum um, relay fee rate there's actually two versions of it Right. One is the absolute minimum that any node will allow, which is sort of a, a setting that you, you know, send your Bitcoin.com file. But then there's a second variant of this, which is as the mempool fills up to the by default 300 megabyte limit, then the minimum fee, um, minimum relay fee rate is chosen by what's actually at the minimum fee rate in the mempool. So, you know, as, as more transactions come in, other transactions get evicted from the mempool and replaced. And then that minimum fee rate can actually go up. Yes, that's a good point. Peter, as you're, as you're talking about sort of the feasibility of propagating, um, I know there's BIP 133, which provides some sort of peer messaging about essentially informing and getting in information from your peers to either send or not send uh, in, in messages related to uh, certain fee levels. Um, I don't know if anyone's done any research on the network to see what those values are, are set at um, to be able to determine the feasibility of, of propagating these lower fee rate transactions. I don't know if, if Merch or, or Peter, you guys are aware of anything around that. I think defaults are super sticky and they're just going to, like, 99%, maybe 99.9% .9 of all nodes will never change their defaults. And uh, so a, a network will form a connected component of a subgraph if there's at least two edges th uh, in average that uh, exhibit the same property. So I think, yeah, one or 2% of all nodes setting that would probably be enough for, for transactions to somewhat reliably broadcast and much fewer if they had a way to preferentially peer. Um, I, I, I kind of find that interesting, but I'm, I, I'd like to also get into other topics a little more. We've, we've covered this already for 10 minutes. I mean, I, I, could, I could maybe answer the advantages and disadvantages question, which is, you know, the, the thing with minimum fee, re, minimum, um, fee relay is that the current situation the network works in where, you know, mempools rarely full, the minimum fee rate relay is basically, you know, nearly 99.9% .9 of the time, the actual minimum, et cetera, et cetera. This doesn't, um, this doesn't match how people expect the network to work in the future where transaction fees are much higher and, you know, mempools are constantly full and there's constantly backlog and so on. So, you know, what we've done by putting in this minimum, which is well above the market threshold, which would be the minimum, is we constantly have the network in a situation which is, you know, we're not expecting it to be in the future. And I, th I think this is, you know, not a good idea to have. I think we'd be better off figuring out how the network works in this what we expect it to work like in the future by setting a threshold low enough that the market forces can go figure out what the fee rate should be based on purely, you know, demand and the mempool limit. 
Yeah, I think that is an interesting proposal. And yes, uh, we, we already have a hard limit on how much data will go through the network in the long run, because um, obviously once the block space is uh, all spoken for, uh, there would be a natural limit forming by the mempools filling up the dynamic uh, fee rate potentially going up. And then people wouldn't broadcast and relay these transactions anymore. So I think uh, that is a, a good point and an important idea to keep in mind and we should probably do it i i would agree with peter uh, what i think the original reason was to introduce the min relay transaction fee rate was that we don't want the network to be used as a cheap broadcast system if you have the option to relay data to every single node in the network that then later never gets mined uh, you essentially give people the ability to to cheaply broadcast to the whole network for free uh, because they do not pay the transaction fee later. So there, maybe there should be a very small minimum just to make it not free. And I think that the replacement fee rate should remain the same, where if you want to use the same funds again and again to to uh, create transactions that you have to increment in, in solid chunks. Um, but other than that, yeah, maybe it would be very interesting to, to drop the current min relay transaction fee rate to something much lower. Peter? I mean, I mean, it's important to remember that as long as we have transaction expiration, it will always be possible to go use the, you know, it will be possible to use the mempool in the future to go broadcast stuff for nearly free because it's unlikely to get mined. But like this isn't this isn't something that the minimum fee relay actually gets rid of in the future because the minimum fee relay is expected to go and float, which provides you the ability to go broadcast data by just broadcasting transactions that are close to that. And most of the time, they'll eventually get knocked out of the network. So, you know, I think, again, this speaks back to, you know, we have this artificial limit here, which blinds us from how the network is actually expected to work in the future. And we're probably better off just tackling these problems now. And as I recall, historically, the min fee relays, it was actually added before the uh, mempool eviction scheme was set up. So, you know, this was added first. Then we added the ability to go and evict transactions and thus keep a, um, you know, a size limit on the mempool. And probably what should have happened is we just got rid of the, you know, the hard-coded minimum at that point. But, you know, historically, that's not how that happened. Gloria has joined us. Gloria, um, I know you're jumping in the middle, but we're discussing... Uh, the, the default minimum fee rate for Relay, and mm. I'm sure you have some thoughts on that and the mempool. Yeah, maybe. Uh, <laughs> I think, was, was Peter still finishing his thought? Also, can you hear me? The floor yeah, is yours. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, um, floor is all here. Maybe in two sentences what we've talked about. So we established what the minimum fee rate and the discard fee rate and the dynamic fee rate are. And we've pointed out um, how the network might operate differently in the future if uh, the there's a constant backlog. And we're not really testing for that yet. Peter made some great points about that. And um, the we talked a little bit about the concern of having a cheap broadcast system if we allow free relay, but stuff never gets mined. And uh, I think that's roughly it. Yeah, I guess uh, free relay is maybe unambiguously not good. Um, but yeah, sorry, I, I guess it wasn't here. So I, I can't really t uh, speak to the old points that were discussed before I got here. But um, I think historically, we kind of use it as a bit of a DOS protection, right? Um, and I guess there's a question of like how effective that is and whether it's appropriate to use it for that purpose, et cetera. Um, so that would be, I guess, something to throw in there. Maybe another follow-up. Um, I thought it was interesting. Somebody proposed whether we could do a hash rate or a, a little bit of a, sorry, a proof of work on transactions. Right. And I had some thoughts on that, and I, I also wanted to hear other people's thoughts. Mm, I guess it, it would be, I mean, right now you can sign a transaction without hardware that's able to work. To work. Um, so that might be a bit not fun for some people trying to transact. 
Yeah, that was my concern as well. I would see that um, hardware signer de signing devices might have issues producing that proof of work. It might obsolete some of the signing devices right now. Or, or well, I guess if they could either pay or do proof of work, it uh, it would still work by them just paying a higher fee rate. Uh, but on the other hand, people that that do try to waste bandwidth of other users would probably not be restrained by having a little uh, having low computing power. So, uh, with the the small throughput that is possible in the network in the first place, I think it would be pretty easy to harness enough computing power to to still produce the necessary proof of work to to spam the network with this. Yeah, exactly. I'm not sure how. I mean, to, that would to be, be clear, mm. sorry. There you go. To, to be clear, I, I propose the idea of having a separate transaction relay scheme used, you know, as an example, you know, using different mechanisms to determine whether or not a transaction was worth relaying. And as a separate scheme, I think having proof of work could be an interesting option. But it's important, like, you know, I, the way I think a, a system like that should work is you would want to have a scheme where anybody, include, you know, unrelated to original signer, could just do some you know, minor proof of work scheme and potentially, you know, um, you know, and of course by proof of work, I don't necessarily mean the Bitcoin proof of work, you know, you could choose as one of these so-called CPU hard schemes, et cetera, et cetera, where the only purpose of that is just to tell these other set of nodes, hey, you know, broadcast this transaction, maybe some miners will go see it, maybe some won't, but I'm not suggesting that we add this to the existing system. And I, I think the reason why you'd want to have a separate system is for redundancy because of L2 protocols, where the ability to get a transaction broadcast and visible to miners is really important, because you know their punishment systems are based on this. If you cannot get a transaction broadcast into miners, who then who can then look at the you know merits of that transaction on their own, you could lose a lot of money because your punishment transaction won't go, and you know your counterparty will steal your funds in a say a lightning channel. So for that, having diversity is good. But you know, certainly not like something we should you know add to every transaction. Okay, so you mean like you want more ways to propagate the transaction, not fewer ways? Um, that exactly. Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, transaction broadcasts over Twitter would be perfectly good in this kind of scenario where, you know, obviously that's a highly centralized way of broadcasting transactions. But as an adjunct to other systems. That will reduce certain types of failure modes where, for instance, you know, someone's exploited a mempool bug and suddenly a bunch of lightning channels are about to go and get exploited. That's an interesting point, and thanks that you clarified that. Um, yeah, I guess I, I haven't thought it all that much through, and um, I think we, we also want to get a little bit into the PR review club. Uh, so. Does anybody have some final points that they want to add about the minimum fee rate topic? I'll relay something that, that Taj had sent me offline. Um, unfortunately, he doesn't have a, a microphone on his device, so he's attending in listen-only listen mode. Um, but one of the points that he made is that, you know, since low fee rate transactions could just be sent to the miners directly, you may end up in a scenario where you're incentivizing modified Bitcoin core clients that can do such things and that it might be easier for someone to download a new binary than in, in modified Bitcoin conf. And, and you maybe if it's not the default client, then you, you sort of and end up with these alternate clients with these patch systems that, that can do these sorts of things. So I don't know if you guys have, have thoughts on that incentive or that consideration. Yeah. Oh, am I going? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> um, I don't think there's that much wrong with there being some nodes that are changing their configurations. I mean, min relay fee is configurable, so that's totally fine. Um, I think the question of like changing the default is like, okay, maybe one sat per V byte is suboptimal, but like if we're going to decide on some new value, it shouldn't be arbitrary so the kind of process of figuring out what this new value is is like if someone were to simulate like okay what's the cost of like using this much network bandwidth that we determine is not okay and considered spam slash attack um, like what does that look like in terms of 
sats and then what does that look like in terms of like you know usd or whatever and then that's like the budget and then like that's probably the process of like coming to a conclusion on like what this new value might be um otherwise they're just going to go and bike shed like why is it 0.1 why is it 0 why not 0.2 why not whatever um but yeah like if anyone says like set it to zero i would say that's quite unsafe um but yeah that's my two cents on how we would come to a new value for defaults not for like you know configurable things sorry go ahead um yeah i wanted to mention two things one is um having multiple avenues how clients can be distributed might be a great thing but if it uh, becomes very broad so that a ton of people publish clients it might also be easier to distribute malware because people would become maybe more accepting of oh yeah they are doing something cool now and i'm getting it from this random uh, sketchy website um that might be a concern that uh, hit might hit some some random users more than than advanced users but um there, there is a certain um, safety in in having a a solitary source of of where you can get the client. And if we were able to configure our client directly to exhibit these behaviors, that would be safer for uh, users that are less discerning, maybe. And the second point that I wanted to make is, if we actually drop the fee rate to zero, it would perhaps become very cheap for people to consolidate outstanding UTXOs that are tiny right now, but it might also become really cheap for people to create a ton of new UTXOs. And uh, I think it might be really hard to to intensively think what effect such a change would have. And yeah, so the bike shedding would be pretty difficult maybe to, to conclude. Merch, have any, are you As, aware of any? Um, Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. As, as, as long as the dust limit is still in existence, it would not become cheap to go create new T UTXOs, though, because you've got the dust um, issue. And then I, I think I'd point out, I mean, what I expect would happen if you actually just said it's zero was people would do consolidation transactions, whatever, you know, maybe spam the mempool, who cares what it is. And in practice, the limit would actually be set by the mempool size limit. So whatever the heck, you know, 300 megabytes works out to be by the market, that's what would happen. And it'd probably be somewhat consistent across different nodes. And, you know, I, again, I think the advantage of that is we just go and we operate in a regime where we're, where we keep saying we expect to go work in the, you know, operate in, in the future. Because in reality, blocks are pretty close to full, but not quite. Yet somehow, despite being pretty close to full, we're not seeing big backlogs like people expected. And, you know, I, I think we should explore. You know, what's really going on there, and wh why is it that these, you know, why is it that these backlogs of transactions aren't popping up like we expected? Great. Um, back to you, Mike. Um, yeah, a couple of things. One, uh, Taj, Taj mentioned similarly that uh, he he would like to see what that backlog would look like with a reduction in the min relay. Um, his his guess was that there would be. Um, a large backlog of sub one sat per vbyte transactions. Um, you know, that's just his stipulation. Um, and then my question to the group is, are we aware of any, to, to Merch's point about uh, sort of allowing these uh, consolidations at lower fee rates, I don't know if any miners in the past have sort of volunteered to process batches of those lower fee transactions that would facilitate consolidation on behalf of the network. Uh, it may not be financially prudent for them to, to do so, but I, I don't know if anybody in the past has sort of done that as a altruistic thing. Um, I F2 think it has pool happened. did go, yeah, we have, uh, we've got F2 pool hole, but yeah, you, you go ahead. You, you probably know too. Oh, no, 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 you go ahead. All right, yeah. Anyway, F2 pool mines, you know, huge numbers of um, one Satoshi outputs. And I, th I think even some zero Satoshi outputs that were, I believe, in actually non-standard that got mined. So you know, that has happened in the past, but I believe that was all just done manually. Um, I think uh, we're going to wrap up, or what do you think, Mike? Yeah, I mean, that sounds good to me, unless Peter or Gloria have a, something else on, on this topic. Sounds good to me. All right. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, for, like I mentioned, we have a, a monthly segment 
this week, which is the Bitcoin Core PR Review Club. Um, Gloria is here on behalf of both, I guess, PR Review Club as well as the the host of this particular meeting that that we're covering um, this month in, in the newsletter. Gloria, I think it it might make sense if you sort of pitch the PR Review Club and before getting into an overview of this particular PR. Yeah, sure. So Bitcoin uh, Core PR Review Club is a weekly meeting where we pick a PR. Uh, The host will put up some notes and some questions uh, about that Bitcoin Core PR. And then we take an hour on IRC every Wednesday at 17 UTC to discuss those questions. Um, And kind of pitch wise, this is basically how I learned the Bitcoin Core code base. Um, It's very large and there's a lot of components. It's very large in scope. Um, And each PR you can kind of think of as like a guided tour through some functionality. Um, Sometimes it's a bug fix, sometimes it's adding a feature. Um, Either way, the notes sometimes give kind of a scenic uh, route of you know the associated parts of the code base so it's a great way to learn about the code um, and the questions are kind of designed to help you build up a review mindset of what kinds of questions you might want to ask yourself to convince yourself that a PR is safe um, so for example the one that was covered in Optech this week uh, yeah this week um, was a refactoring PR um, and it was you know, there's no behavior change. Uh, and so the questions kind of went through each commit and listed questions of like, how can you verify that? It, like, how can you use GDB to make sure that something is still hit even though it was deleted? Or like, why is this um, C++ attribute added to this function? Like, why is that appropriate? Why is this type change? Like, you know, just like, how do you dive a little deeper and zoom in on the details and be just like a really, um, you know, security minded reviewer. Um, so that's kind of my pitch and recommendation for coming to PR review club. It's at bitcoincore.reviews. Yeah. I think I would, I would endorse, uh, any folks who are curious about the technicals to jump into, to one of those meetings. It's, you know, you, you could spend a bit of time before the actual meeting itself and study the PR, um, but you could also just sort of jump in and follow along with the discussion either while it's happening or or after the fact. There's there's logs on the website to, to review everything, and I think it's a good way to sort of dip your toe in the water if you're curious about the technicals and want to sort of get a, a shotgun approach of each of the areas of the code base. You may be doing, you know, peer-to-peer what, one week and consensus change the next week or, or factoring one like this one. So I, I, I would endorse folks who are curious to, to join. Yeah. And I should have mentioned that it's open to anyone and you're supposed to be able to ask questions and all beginners are welcome. Yeah. Gloria, do you want to, uh, you, you kind of give a, a slight summary of the, of the, the PR. Do you, do you want to, jump in a bit further do you want to go to the the, the questions how do you want to approach uh hmm I, I would recommend if people are like really curious just you know go and read the logs or look at the pr itself um so the pr is called decouple validation cache initialization from args manager so if you pretty like Bitcoin core specific uh, terms in there. It is part of the Lib Bitcoin kernel project, which maybe we can talk a little bit about. Um, sorry. Yeah, I think talking about the project would be would be interesting um, since it may not be something that folks are familiar with. And if they are maybe understanding what's what, what is the motivation for that? Where could it be used in the future, et cetera? And Gloria, I know you have some opinions here. Yeah, well, so this is Carl Dong's project. Um, and I think the background is essentially uh, Bitcoin Core is called the reference implementation of like the Bitcoin protocol. And, you know, it's always hard to completely modularize code. Um, and so part, maybe part of the reason we see a kind of 
dominance of Bitcoin Core as the implementation used by nodes on the network is it's, it's quite difficult to create a brand new implementation because it's so, so, so important to stay in consensus. Um, and it's kind of hard to replicate because it, that's hard, you know, it, like it's very hard to enumerate what all of the consensus rules are and what all of the consensus critical components of the code base are. Um, and so Lib Bitcoin kernel is one of uh, I think there there have been many attempts or several attempts at least before this to essentially modularize what is consensus, what is consensus critical. Um, uh, although I don't want to butcher this uh, explanation, but so it's not just meant to be like, oh, let's throw all of the consensus functions into a library. Um, it is it's supposed to be a kernel. So like a stateful, um, like, how do I say this? Like its own, <laughs> I'm butchering this, but like um, its own, like, well, let me just quote from this. So let's see, it is a stateful library that can spawn threads, do caching, do IO and many other things, which one may not normally expect from a library. Um, and I think this approach is separate from, or like different from previous approaches and that it's reusing existing code. Again, I'm basically just quoting from the issue itself um, rather than like trying to create one library and throw everything in there. Um, and so, yeah, sorry for, hopefully Carl is not listening to this, but yeah, that's that's what kernel is. <laughs> Go ahead, March. I I think you didn't butch it. Uh, that was a good description. So the I think um, you mentioned that there's other things besides just evaluating the rules directly in there. For example, how to behave with the cache. And at that point, I think it would be interesting to point out that um, in the past, we've had, for example, a network fork when a library or when um, a limit was hit on a database that was not on the radar of being consensus critical. So it is not only a question of enumerating all the rules, it's also a question of being bug for bug compatible with the actual behavior on different architectures, different systems, and um, different operating systems. So, um, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's much more comprehensive and, and uh, difficult to actually produce a, a module that encompasses all of that and can just be imported in dif into different projects, and that's why it's not just a library. Yeah, so to be more specific, you're referring to BIP50, yeah, which was a, an accidental hard fork in 2013, um, where, like, no fork was intended, but a change in the, data, the database meant that some nodes were, um, like, I think it was didn't have enough mutexes to, like, validate all the transactions and the block had quite a few transactions and then so some rejected it um, and so yeah like there's so many things that are consensus critical but we wouldn't maybe consider a consensus rule like obviously the implementation details and the database and how many mutexes have is not part of block validation rules um, but it's an example of I think we talk about this a lot in the meeting, actually, if people are interested in reading the review club notes, the difference between consensus and consensus critical, and thus why it is important to then try to just cut this as kernel and instead of like extract out what we think are the consensus rules, because that might be impossible to do. And I, I think one example from the PR review club that I hadn't really thought about until it, it came up was sort of the, the, the cache component, right? Like that's another one of those that you could say, oh, well, that, that's not part of kernel or, or whatnot. And, and maybe this is a good segue into the PR a bit, which is why is the cache, why, why should that be, be part of kernel? Um, and what, are the, what, what could go wrong that would be consensus related with the cache? Yeah, exactly. I guess to, to dive into these validation caches. So script 
specifically signature verification are computationally expensive. And the most computationally expensive part of validating transactions in a block and thus the block itself. Um, And so one thing that we do to speed up performance is to cache the signature and script verification results of transactions we see uh, that are broadcast uh, before they're in a block. So when we're validating them for our mempool, we'll check that the signatures are correct and whatnot. Um, And so we'll cache those. And then in block validation, we'll just use those results. And that makes things much faster and you know, so it's consensus critical. So if there is something wrong um, in the script cache implementation, like for example, we're like dropping the last bit or like we're not actually caching the signature itself, but only the pub key or, you know, something maybe more nuanced than that. But for some reason we're allowing invalid signatures in our cache. Um, that could be a consensus bug. Well, it is a consensus bug because now you're no longer enforcing those rules when you go to validate transactions in the block. Um, and so, yeah, that's why validation caches are part of kernel. Do you know if the project uh, has aspirations beyond just being used in Bitcoin Core? Like, would, would this be a kernel used in, in alternate node softwares? As far as I know, that is the intention that after kernel, you could use this to build an alternative implementation of Bitcoin. Uh, and then maybe not every, or maybe we wouldn't have so many Bitcoin core nodes. We'd have, you know, kernel plus blank nodes, um, which could be healthy for decentralization on the network. Yeah, I was going to sort of lead you to that if, if you want to comment briefly on your philosophy there. Oh yeah. Um, so I think I think it's quite important to not have every <laughs> to not have every node on the network be Bitcoin Core um, because uh, but what that means is like if there is a bug um, that can cause nodes to crash, for example, uh, like there's an assertion uh, based on an assumption that is not true in specific cases, um, then it becomes somewhat easy for an attacker to take down a large portion of the network. Um, or if you know you notice some particular behavior that can cause Bitcoin core nodes to disconnect each other, um, then you can cause network partition. But if we have a bit more diversity in nodes, like just from a security standpoint, that makes sense. Um, The other thing is a lot of people make arguments that Bitcoin Core kind of controls Bitcoin. I don't think that's the case, Um, but it's still a lot of pressure to put on Bitcoin Core contributors and maintainers to be like, yeah, you you have to make sure this is correct. Otherwise, if you deploy it and everyone runs it, like the consequences can be taking down a lot of the network. Um, So hopefully that makes sense as an argument for why multiple implementations make sense. But more importantly than that is all the nodes on the network should enforce the same rules. Um, And so if there isn't uh, like a shared, I don't know, library or kernel or something, there is that risk of potentially falling out of consensus. And so I think this is a really, really good approach to having it having both where every everyone is using let's say kernel which is a minimal set of the consensus critical stuff and then all the other things that should be optional are Um, and then we no longer have this kind of double standard of like oh bitcoin core needs to be a perfect reference implementation and you know we need to make sure that like nothing ever breaks but also like all of these you know nice things that make bitcoin usable like a wallet um, like even some of the optional like protocol things like package relay or mempool or whatever, um, maybe we can have more lightweight versions or more enterprise focused nodes or, you know, like multiple implementations, is what I'm saying. Uh, so we have the, the both of diversity on the network, but also everyone staying in consensus. Thanks for, uh, thanks for explaining your, your philosophy there. Um, for the, for any journalists on this space, you can now quote Bitcoin Core 
maintainer is Please saying, don't. <laughs> I, I want I want you to use Bitcoin Core less. I want I want less Bitcoin Core in the network. Um, I kid. Uh, is, is there anything else about this particular PR or or the project in general that you think would be beneficial to to the listeners to discuss? I mean, if people are interested in in contributing to Bitcoin Core, please review PRs. That's kind of, um, yeah. Yeah, that's a great place to start. Merch, anything that you'd like to add? No, I think Gloria did a great job of summing it all up. Uh, how about we move into the the update section of, with the PRs that got merged? Uh, I think we're we might go a little over the hour, but um, but let's try to to attack that. Yeah, that sounds great. Uh, Merch, why don't you jump in on on this first one, since I I know you had some feedback on that when we were crafting the newsletter. I don't have it in front of me. That's twenty four five eight four. The segregation of inputs. No, that's the, that's the next one. Uh, this first one is the uh, RBF defaults essentially. Oh yeah, um, right. So we had a PR that changed the be- default behavior of Bitcoin Core. Uh, so far, uh, Bitcoin Core the wallet will generate transactions that opt into replaced by fee uh, if you create transactions through the GUI. So uh, currently we're seeing about 27% of all transactions signaling replaceability. There's also recently been a change in uh, Bitcoin Core where you get a new startup flag and if you use that startup flag, you will actually um, not require the uh, replaceability flag on transactions to allow transactions to be replaced in your mempool. Um, so there's there's a little bit of a shift here, or not a shift. Uh, it's basically the same things people have been arguing for the last five years that uh, to get rid of some of the issues around pinning attacks and uh, making the making replacements easy on the network and making it easy for users to prioritize their transactions and um, be compatible with mining incentives at the same time. Transactions before they're confirmed should be easily replaceable at a cost because whenever you replace a transaction, obviously you're broadcasting data to all of the network and we want that data or we want people to opt in to pay something for that, for broadcasting a message to the whole network. So in this specific PR that we're looking at, um, we changed that after the GUI already opts in by default, uh, the RPCs, when you use Bitcoin Core from the command line, will also create transactions that opt into RBF by default. And that happens in twofold ways. Um, on the one hand, there's uh, uh, the default behavior on startup, the wallet RBF flag is now true by default instead of false. And the there was two, two RPCs that um, now by default create transactions that are replaceable by default. I don't have the, them in my head right now, which ones they were. And one, one thing that I saw, I forget in which venue this was discussed, but I, something like almost 30% of transactions are signaling RBF, is that right? Yeah, um, I think the latest figure is like 27% or so. Um, Funnily enough, a lot of transactions do signal replaceability, but the amount of replacing events are not that high yet. I think that um, OHB10C had been collecting some data on that. I don't know if he's already published it. Yeah, based on the graphs that he sent me, it looks like... 3% 3% of all transactions are replacements, which is quite a bit. There's like a few thousand every day. That would definitely go up a bit if two things happen. A, if we drop them in relay transaction fee rate to zero, <laughs> and B, uh, if we make replaceability the default, uh, which is uh, what this previous PR that we link in the newsletter uh, is about, is um, full RBF instead of opt-in RBF. I think we can move on to uh, Bitcoin Core 24584, which is talking about um, coin selection. 
and can I take that one? (laughs) Yeah, we have a coin coin selection guru here that maybe can uh, bring some clarity to to what's going on in this PR. All right. So when you build the transaction, you have to pick some inputs to to fund the transaction. And previously in Bitcoin Core, we have always been just picking from the whole set. Uh, With this PR that uh, Josie contributed, we will now try to separate the UTXO types in our wallet first and try to build an input set from each of those separate um, types. So if you have pay to public key hash legacy inputs or native SegWit inputs and wrapped SegWit inputs, you would try to do coin selection on each of those sets separately. And if you find an input set that only uses one type, we would prefer using only a single type at first. And the idea here is that that helps with some of the the fingerprints around building transactions that might reveal especially what the change output was on a previous transaction. And it turns out that if you segregate the input types, you actually can also save fees because um, it will now prefer uh, spending larger UTXO types like legacy at low fee rates more and uh, spend cheaper UTXO types at high fee rates more because now we directly create separate sets of inputs for those and our waste metric that we have already will cause it to prefer the one that is cheaper. Excellent. Uh, so I, I, I assume you're supportive of this change? I Yeah, we, I think uh, it was born, the idea was born for it in a meeting that uh, Josie, I, and a few other people had, and um, he then volunteered to implement it. I, I've been supported. I was pleasantly surprised that it also caused fees to go down in our simulations that we did to to uh, make sure that it actually is a beneficial change in all avenues. And um, I think that it is a good privacy improvement. Great. Anything more to add on that PR? Oh, maybe... There was a different change in, I think it was February or January, and uh, that is that we always in Bitcoin Core now match the output type of the recipient with our change. So when you send money to a legacy output, you would also create a legacy change output, or same with native segment, or you would downgrade your output to match the type, because there's several heuristics that uh, chain analysis or chain analytics companies use to, to follow the transaction path and, and try to, to cluster activity uh, to distinguish wallets. And some of a lot of them are uh, around identifying what the change output was in a transaction because that ties future transactions of the wallet to old transactions. And uh, so matching the type will actually cause us to have UTXOs of different types, which is why this PR is especially useful. And also vice versa, having this PR makes it more palatable to match output types. Yeah, essentially the, the, the previous change, uh, well, the, the previous update uh, affected that first transaction so that the change wasn't as obvious. And then this PR that we're talking about um, sort of affects subsequent transactions that would happen with the change from from that original transaction. And, and if you're a little confused on this PR there, uh, Josie's got a nice uh, diagram and example in the PR that can can help you kind of wrap your mind around these different changes that have made to coin selection. All cool. right. Next, uh, next one. Yeah, next is a PR to Core Lightning, um, and that's fifty seventy one, and it adds a bookkeeper plugin. So uh, Core Lightning is plugin based, and in, in that a lot of the functionality can be augmented um, or changed using these plugins. And so this is a a bookkeeper plugin, um, and, and essentially, from what I can tell, it, it, it's an accounting plugin. So you can sort of see all movements of Bitcoins in and out, including fees, and then sort of have some 
reporting around that for various reasons, including, I, I suppose, auditing and, and tax purposes could could be use cases here, as, as well as just general uh, analytics around your particular core lightning node. I, I haven't used it, so I, I can't opine more than that. I don't know, Merch, if, you, if you've used it, are you familiar with it? No, unfortunately not. We really need to get a lightning uh, expert up here too. <laughs> Yeah, indeed. Um, maybe I'll I'll put the feelers out and see if somebody wants to join us for future. Uh, two more here. One is uh, BDK. Um, it, there's a change to the way that Taproot spends are signed for. So before this change, BDK, which is uh, the Bitcoin development kit, um, would would sign for the the key path spend, and then also any script path leaves that it had the keys for. Um, and so I guess it would, it would just sign everything uh, as opposed to with this PR as a way to specify specifically which of the spend paths you want to sign for and instead of signing all of those different potential script paths. So in Taproot, you have sort of the key path spend and then you have these script paths. Um, and instead of signing all, you, you can specify exactly which one Key, uh, script path spend you would like to spend. That sounds like a good change. <laughs> yeah, that seems reasonable. Uh, and then the last PR here is a PR to the Bolts repository, which is essentially the, the Lightning spec. And it uh, the, the summary is that it, uh, it adds the ability for a node to announce a DNS host name that resolves to the IP address. And my understanding is part of the motiv motivation there was that um, without this, you're somewhat relying on the gossip network to get some of this information and having this DNS entry adds a little bit more validation to uh, some of the address information as opposed to just having and getting it through the, the gossip network. Merch, any, any, anything on Volt 9.11? Sorry, I I must admit that I actually failed to look at it earlier today. Oh, okay, no worries. Well, we're a little bit over time anyways, so if anybody has a question, feel free to raise your hand or, or request uh, speaker access and we can bring you in. Here we have one. Akhtar? Cool, you're up here. You just have to unmute so we can hear you. Akhtar? Um, well, he, uh, hey brothers, how are you? Good evening. This is Akhtar Sen from Pakistan. So I am interested in Bitcoin. So kindly inform me that what is it is about and uh, how can I benefit from it? Uh, I will be thankful. Uh, just more broadly and, and using the Bitcoin software? Um. I'll, I'll try to, to cover it in two sentences, but I think that uh, it might be a little too broad as a question for, for this uh, meeting in general. Uh, so generally, Bitcoin is useful to send money to other people. And since it's a global system, it uh, works to anybody on the planet. And uh, it tries to exhibit the properties of cash payments on the internet. So there is a few um, privacy benefits and and just more sovereignty to holding your own money. So if that sounds interesting, um, you could, for example, try to find our I'm new to Bitcoin uh, topic on Bitcoin Stack Exchange. It's, for example, linked on my profile. Uh, we go into a lot of different uh, questions early users have, and there is also one that is uh, about the key selling points of what Bitcoin can do for you, and um, I think it's called. Um, uh, how do you describe uh, Bitcoin in a few sentences or so? I, I'll link it in the announcement of our meeting here. Okay, goodbye. Oh, oh, you just un unspeakerified yourself. Never mind. <laughs> Don's Finn. Okay. Hi. Well, okay, I guess now that we've taken two questions, um, does anybody else have something to, to say about wrapping up this meeting? Gloria, would you like to make a sound effect noise as well? Um, 
Happy. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thanks everybody for joining. Uh, sorry that we weren't able to get Taj on verbally and we had to read some of his notes. It was great that, that Peter joined us, Gloria joined us, Larry joined us. Merch, thanks for um, doing this thing with me. And I, I hope you guys like the Thursday edition, giving everybody a little bit more time to consume the newsletter um, before we have this discussion. Any feedback, feel free to uh, message myself or Merch or re reply to the Optech account with, with any ideas. And um, appreciate you all joining us and your curiosity into Bitcoin and some of the technicals. So thank, thanks, everybody. Thank you. Yeah, cheers. Talk to you soon.